Hey, hey, everyone, what's going on? Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to share with you how stoked I am that the First Act podcast has seen such a significant increase in viewership over the last month. For those of you who have been writing me direct messages asking for advice, I really appreciate that. Keep them coming. I want to provide you as much value as I can. So if you have any questions you'd like for me to ask one of our guests, I will do that if you send me a message on LinkedIn. Today, we have gaming and live stream pioneer Jimmy Wisenhunt. Jimmy walks us through his career as a competitive gamer and live streamer to becoming a commentator for ESEA, to consulting for gaming companies, and forging music and biz dev partnerships at Twitch for the past six years. If you're a gamer, an indie artist, or someone who aspires to a career in entertainment, this episode you're not going to want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Cool. All right, everyone. So today we've got a really special treat. We've got Jimmy Wiesenhunt. So what's the best way to describe you as? Like a, a Twitch streamer, a gamer, a, a business person? A uh, business person these days. I don't. I don't do much of the content anymore. No, I mean, I, I I've learned that it's at least for me more fun to help other people uh, do cool things like stream and make content and succeed. You know, it's a lot of work to do it on your own. So, <laughs> and you've been with Twitch now for what, like eleven years? How do I describe this? So early on on Twitch, they were just a, a service where you, like you broadcasted, right? They didn't really have a lot of their own content. And so we early partners started consulting, doing events for them. They built a cool tech platform, but not like a lot of content. So at their events, I consulted with them, worked with them early on and streamed. And then I joined full time like five years ago. And how did you find out about them so early on? Complete accident, funny enough. So I was a, um, a longtime competitor and commentator in Counter-Strike. And the scene had kind of died, especially in North America. And I started streaming on livestream.com, I think. It was like one of the, right after Justin TV, and was invited to a quote-unquote premiere event. Through that, I didn't even realize it was being broadcasted. I thought it was being like pre-recorded. And this guy, Ben Goldhaber, uh, who worked for Twitch, like came up and was like, hey, like I've been watching your streams, watch your YouTube channel, these other things. We just launched this thing called Twitch. This is where it's being broadcasted. There's 10,000 people watching it right now. Would you like to be a partner? Like come work with us and like, you know, make content here. And I said, like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck it. Why not? Um, if you don't mind sharing, like, how old are you? I'm 31. So you're 31. So when did you start gaming? I was probably 10. Uh, my, well, I know I was younger than that, actually. Like, I was probably five when my dad brought home a Super Nintendo. Maybe even younger, because it's hard to remember if he brought the computer home and didn't understand it and had me help, or if it was the Super Nintendo. Long time. Long time. And your dad was a gamer too? He thought he wanted to be. Like he did, he was really into early PC, like uh, Commander Keen, Wolfenstein 3D, like all of the shareware kind of era 
uh, with all his coworkers, he would bring home the discs, the the shareware discs to like show me a new game or whatever. We even, what was the name of the TV? It was the Tech TV channel back in the day. I think it was Tech TV, but they used to do like the games previews and all that stuff before mm. YouTube. And I remember the thing that really hooked me on gaming was Quake, was when my dad and I, Tech TV, we saw like this tech preview of like the lighting and the lava. It was like this first time we'd seen like 3D first person shooters. Right. And I was... It was like a year out at that point, but I was already decided, like, I will play this game for the rest of my life. Uh, and it's kind of what happened. <laughs> and so, like, what about mom or your siblings? Like, were were you like a whole family that was really into tech and into gaming or what was that like? Um, so my, I'm exactly seven years older than my sister. She was born on my birthday when I was seven, which was hilarious, but, uh, that's not like the gift you want when you're seven, by the way, that's like, like I, I, yeah, I thought I wanted a sister, but don't take my birthday. Like this is the last thing I got going with, with mom and dad. But, um, dad was really techie, but like he hit a ceiling somewhere in like the mid nineties where like things accelerated so fast for him that like, he just, he just stopped there. He's like, no, I'm good. He's recently come back over the past five or 10 years with like uh, iPhones and stuff, but never like huge right. into the more modern stuff. <laughs> okay. And, and mom, not into tech at all? No, not, a, not even in the slightest. Um, she's the kind of person that enjoys a, a, a nice walk and a nap. I feel like she's or like a little soap opera, not, not much for, uh, for tech. That's nice. Simple. Yeah. Cool. And where did you say you grew up? Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Actually, I haven't been to Oklahoma, but I is there, there's good skiing out there, isn't there? No, so Oklahoma is really flat. It's like, um, and it's also <laughs> weirdly not. <laughs> you know, honestly, here, look, I'll be I'll be fair to you on that one, right? Because it's it's not quite the South. It's not really the Midwest, and it's flyover country. And then we're surrounded by all these cool things. Oklahoma's got like none of that except a lake. <laughs> Oh, so, so Oklahoma, there's great skiing out there, right? No, it's actually pretty flat. Good, good for cross country. <laughs> so what was it like growing up there? Um, it was interesting. My, my dad was uh, a really hard worker. He, he was a high school graduate um, and clearly like always working. Like the guy had a hundred jobs, I think, before I was born. And he kind of landed as like a forklift driver at a... How do I, how do I describe it? It's an oil company, but they, they sell the parts. Like they, when you buy a rig, the rig breaks down. They don't keep making the parts for that forever. Right. So if you have a rig that's 50 years old, you still need parts, but the manufacturer doesn't make them. So they make third party parts for that. And he was a forklift driver there. And through some magical turn of events, like he answered a few phone calls and got promoted to sales and that became his career. But for a lot of my younger life and I, it's not a bad thing. Like we were in a house that was a little questionable as far as like it's, it's foundation in, you know, in the ground and, in you know, as a first house for them and yeah, didn't, didn't have a lot of money for a while growing up. You'd think it'd be pretty, a pretty stable house seeing as like the land was so flat, you know, no mountains. <laughs> well, we, we picked one that was built into like the, the front yard was down like 20 feet and then the backyard was up another and the house was like built into that. And I just remember the basement actually felt like it was underground, wow. even though it had a door to the back. It was weird. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like an interesting childhood. So you got into gaming, I guess, when you were a kid with Super Nintendo. At what point did you realize that you were just better than other people? <laughs> I, uh, 
I, I, I think anyone who came up in Counter-Strike and Quake, like I did in that era, like 90, that was starting to be like 98, I think when internet, at least my part of the country, was good enough to like actually feel like you couldn't blame the internet and like you actually had a clear, you know, uh, picture of whether or not you're good. So you were what, eight, nine? Uh, I would have been, see, 88, got him so bad at math, two, 10, 10 11. That's about yeah. 11, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Half-Life released in like 98. The mod for Counter-Strike came out in like 98 or 99. I, I don't, years are weird there. But um, as I started playing online, we got a little bit better internet, a little more money, a little better computer. Uh, I realized it was a lot better than all my friends, like locally, like right. around me at school and stuff. Uh, but they still loved it, just kept doing it for fun until I started hearing people actually competed in it. And uh, I thought I was real good. I come to find out that like, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. That's always how it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was 11. These people were like picking this game up at like 18 sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, <laughs> uh, very large life gap of like, you know, how to use your hands and all that. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, some of the games that we would have struggled with years ago, you know, just having like a better developed brain yeah. <laughs> would help a lot. Right. I, I, I get that. So you're better than your friends and you, you keep playing online. You're just having, you're just having a good time. And then when did you play your first competition? And like, how did you find that? I don't actually know what year that would have been. And what's funny is I'm struggling to even remember how I came in contact with all the people that I found, because like, we're all friends to this day. Like we talk every once in a while. Uh, but I found a crew of people from Tulsa if like my town, which was weird already, it's a pretty small town, who also played Counter-Strike and were interested in competing. And they, oh, I think it was IRC back then. Like we got in contact, like they heard us from Oklahoma and we went down for this Everland thing in Tulsa at this cafe. And there was only like three or four teams and we just absolutely trounced. Like it was like uninstall the game level of winning, but it was still Tulsa, Oklahoma local tournament. But it was like the first time I sat down in a room, could yell at someone I'm playing against to intimidate them. Like I like, it's a mind game. It's all nerves. So that was the first time I was pretty young. I think 2004, maybe 2003. I'm trying to think about like me at that point. Like I had, I didn't play much CS. I was just, I didn't have the steady hand for it. I <laughs> was counter-strike with FPS, Doug. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Boo, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. That was, uh, that was the heyday of like counter-strike premium content with stuff like that. He was incredible. Okay. So you're, you're playing tournaments. You're able to shout at people. You could distract them, really get them, throw them off their game. I do the exact same thing when I'm playing smash bros in like some sort of a tournament. Um, I'll just talk to people because I'm really good at multitasking. So I can just tell them a fucking story and then they are usually not used to someone so chatty. Right. <laughs> That's fair. That's it's good tactic. I mean, it's a little more aggressive uh, back then in the counter-strike scene. It was usually, uh, you knew exactly what they were doing. Like, uh, yeah, it was rough. So counter-strike was like your game, I guess. Like when you were like early teens, I guess you played it for how many years after that? Um, I, up until about two years ago, I still played it at a pretty high level. Like I didn't compete or like take the time to schedule, but with a lot of former competitive players and pros that I'm friends with, like we would still jump in a, uh, ESEA open season or something where it's an open league. Was there like money to be won or was it more discred? 
Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, Counter-Strike at that point was in such a weird place because we all want, like the viewership for Counter-Strike back then internationally was gigantic. And there was a period where North America had one to sometimes two of the best teams in the world. It was, you know, like Team 3D. I think everyone, anyone who was like watching frag videos or, you know, followed FPS that time was like Rambo and K-Sharp and uh, Warden and Sunman and all them. They had the kind of backing that allowed them to get out to Sweden, that allowed them to go play with the best in the world. So though you could at that point, but we're not talking hundreds of thousands of dollars or anything. It's like 50K or something. Well, it's still a sizable amount of money, especially if you're a teenage kid and you and you yeah. take that home. Facts. I mean, we being in Tulsa, we're only like four hours from Dallas and the Dallas scene started really growing to be like a hub for the best players in North America. Like for some reason, I think it's a big city, a lot of access from a lot of other uh, states. So we started going down for Lethal Gamers. It was like actually in the back it was like the storeroom of a computer repair shop that was turned into a really shitty land center. That's and it would cost us like a hundred bucks in gas and, you know, our time, but we would still go down to play draft tournaments against the best players in North America just to get there. And if you win, I think we each got like a hundred bucks and a mouse pad, oh, but, <laughs> but like we were legitimately playing like the, like the, some of the best players in the world, hoping that we could at least pay for our kids on the way back. <laughs> and you can't pay for it in a mouse pad. No. no. <laughs> so what did your parents think about it? you gaming doing these competitions driving out at this time it was weird but like my my dad was like rooting me on but also like super concerned because even meeting up with people in Tulsa like I I was 14 maybe when I first started playing with people in the city and they're like how did you meet this person I'm like oh I met him online and they're like what (laughs) and one of the players that we were playing with was almost 20 so he had a car like I think he was renting a place uh, so it was really odd to my right. parents that this would be a thing, but right. they they're, eventually started understanding. Yeah. They're like, what's this 20 year old doing with my 14 year old son? He has his own right. place. He's driving him to another state. Like what's going on here? Yeah. I can see it was that. a little weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. <laughs> like, so you did this throughout high school, you know, were you doing this at all for money or was it really just, it was mostly just for hobby for fun. I don't know why I did it. If I'm, I think it was a competition. Like it was the same thing that I've just barely missed the wave of where I would have enjoyed martial arts and boxing. Mm. Like I, I boxed. I uh, before the UFC wave kind of took over, we found like a local Muay Thai spot that a friend of mine really liked jujitsu and all that. And like it was super competitive and fun until the tap out people started rolling in. You know, all the guys with the tap out tattoos. And I get that. Just, yeah, it, yeah. So that didn't become my thing. But Counter Strike had grown enough in the competition scene for me to like scratch that itch with that. I think. Do you feel like there was a lot that you learned more than just like devoting the time, like the 10,000 hours into counter-strike or into any sort of game? Is there anything that you found that like you learned how to get better at the games through community? Yeah. I mean, the, it was at the point, like so much of the meta that still exists today in that game and the new version, like it's so similar was being developed at that point. So there were what you didn't see a lot of like, all the focus was on team strategy. And like, that was where the most was to be gained. There hasn't been discovered as much as how you go about executing something as a team. And so there wasn't a lot of community content. People are trying to keep all their shit to like themselves and not let you know what they're going to do. And so it was a a weird era. (laughs) So what was next? Did you, did you go to college? 
Uh, kind of. So I had this grand idea that I was going to go into security and forensics. I had gotten in trouble as a kid, like multiple times, like really young kid. Once I got the internet and the computer and the games, I'm like, how can I troll my friends like with this computer? It was my, for some reason, my first thought I'm a terrible human. And that turned into like, well, it's their fault that they didn't properly secure their web server. And all I'm doing is helping them out. And like, it's, it would be like breaking things, not maliciously and then telling people it was just fun. And my parents are like, we're going to have the feds called if we don't figure out how to channel this. And so I kind of started looking at security and forensics, concurrent enrollment with like a tech school, Tulsa university and dropped out before I graduated high school. I think, I think the term is like a white hat hacker, right? Yeah. I mean, but keep in mind, like this is such early days. I even hesitate to say that because it was such early days of the internet that like nothing security was much more lax. <laughs> I get that. Um, I used to hack people all the time on Neopets all the time. And like my, my, my family thought I was going to end up being like some sort of a scammer or a criminal in, in real life. Yeah. We, we got a phone call one time and I think my parents had that realization. They're like, Oh my God, we have to figure the internet out. Like this kid's going to get in trouble. Right. Because you were like miles ahead of where they were. You understood right. how things worked. Yeah. I think ours escalated. I don't even remember how old I was. It escalated to the point of my dad putting like a net nanny or like a computer nanny like program on the computer. And he thought, I think to this day, he might think that I hacked it. Like that, cause he doesn't really understand. He's like, oh, you did some like matrix thing to like break it. It's like, no, nah, I guess the password, the password was Jesus loves uh, all lowercase <laughs> one word. I still remember it to this day. And I would turn it off when I wanted a game cause it would take screenshots every five seconds and, right. and it would cause Counter-Strike to lag and he refused to turn it off. So like, I just guessed the password and would turn it back on when I was done playing. And he like never figured it out. <laughs> Is your family very Christian? Uh, they are. They're very religious. Yes. Okay. So it's an easy password to guess then. Jesus loves. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that was like the third thing I, it was one of the best <laughs> feelings of my life, man. It was like, I gotta, <laughs> they'll never know. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. So, so you went to college for, for what, like a semester, a year? I concurrent. I don't even remember how many credits or like what that counted toward. I, it was half a day for two years uh, in high school, they had this program. And so probably like a full semester, I would imagine. Okay. No, I get that. Why didn't you stay in it? Uh, candidly, I hate schooling. Like it's not, and not that like, it's not out of laziness. It's really boring to me. I almost flunked out of high school multiple times and I was good at the, a lot of the work I could get it done, but I was just an idiot. Like I, was like, how can I make money now? How can I do this now? Like, why am I sitting here listening to all this? And I heard how much money you could make as a car salesman. And so I became a car salesman um, at a Nissan shop. Cool. At what age? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had have been 20, 21, maybe. Nice. And so what was that like getting started and selling cars? Were you into cars? I, yeah, I was really into cars. I, that only hurt that problem because now I have access to them and I could drive them all and I can, you know, learn about them and be the expert. And so that only solidified more of my car problem. <laughs> why do you, why do you describe it as a car problem? It's expensive as hell. I raced for a bit. So, uh, like, you, you go, if you think about it, you go and you buy maybe, I, I did Hondas because it was inexpensive. Like you could go buy a 1997 Honda four-door that like someone put 250,000 miles on it. 
And as long as there's no frame damage, you then replace the engine. And with within the engine, you are sleeving it. You are replacing pistons, rods, and like all of that nickels and dimes you, and you will literally never see a return. It'll, it'll be worth less than everything you bought it for in total by the time you sell it. Um, it's, it's never appreciating. <laughs> right. So at this point, like, you know, you're 2021, you're working at a Nissan dealership you're selling cars, you're probably still gaming, right? Yes. Yeah. And how long did you last at this, uh, in this industry? I, it's three years, I think, um, ish. I was doing a lot of other things too. The, the, the tipping point for me was starting to get really jaded by humanity through the car industry. On one side, you've got people who just hate you by nature of you being a car salesman, right? right? So they need something from you, but they hate you. Um, no matter how good you may be at your job, which I was pretty solid at it. Like I, uh, and I will say that like, there are dealers who are better than others when it comes to ripping you off. Uh, but just over time and it wears at you seven days a week, six days a week, rather, you know, 60 hours commission only. It's just like, it really starts to wear at you. So what did you do next? I quit out of nowhere. <laughs> I, I literally like, I was kind of a shithead. Uh, I was, I was not very responsible. I was good at my job. I got in a few arguments with the new car manager at the place I was at. He was kind of a jerk, if I'm honest. Um, saw him recently on Facebook. Uh, I hope he's gotten better, but I just didn't show up. Like I, I no showed. And I, finally just decided to not go back. And about that time, I figured out that uh, the YouTube stuff that I'd been doing had actually been getting viewership, no money. There's really not much money to be made, but it was like, it was starting to get attention and I had enough money to be like, okay, for a bit. So I just dove in on that and drove my fiance at the time. Absolutely crazy. She's like, you're literally sitting here after quitting your job and talking about Counter-Strike. You're not going anywhere with this you're right. going to fall apart. <laughs> How did that make you feel? It made me want to do it even more. And what's funny is she was absolutely right. By every metric, she was 100% correct. My dad had said this to me a lot growing up. He never discouraged me from doing it, but he'd always said, if you spent these 10,000 hours doing something else in your life or this much time, if you put it into anything else, you'd be the best in the world at it. So like, you have to pivot your time. She kind of got on me the same way, but I had just seen me coming up through what at the time was competitive gaming became esports. This major gap in like quality conversation and content around this community that I love so much. So I started producing that content more and more and started getting more viewership and kind of fostering that. Okay. And so I, I guess I kind of skipped. At what age did you start streaming? It would have been after high school. So it would have been, I was maybe 20. Okay, I was so 19 or 20. Around the same time that you started working at the car dealership, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it was really, that was a means I knew that I could make enough money to like fund the type of things that I needed microphones and all that to do what I wanted to do. Right. Okay. So at least you had some sort of, um, you know, extrinsic sort of motivator to keep going into work up until the point where you were like, fuck it, I'm not going there anymore. Yep. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Cool. So, you know, when you're saying that you got some viewership on YouTube, you know, I guess this was for Counter-Strike? Uh, yeah, it was. And how, what did you constitute a lot of viewership as? I mean, at that time, it would have been like 10,000 views on a video. 
I, I think the biggest gaming channels at that time had already started to eclipse into the like hundred thousand and beyond. Mm-hmm. But for someone just starting, ten thousand, especially the sign of the size of the Counter Strike scene back then, it was way smaller. Ten thousand views was enough to be like, oh shit, like this is up there with a lot of the other people who are trying to do this and have been for years. Right. And so you said there wasn't a lot of money in it because, you know, 10,000 views even now on YouTube is, is, you know, it's just, it's like a a drop in the bucket. Right. Right. So how did you make money? Were were you living at home at this point? Were you living out? I lived with my fiance, uh, ex-fiance at the time in a house we were renting actually from her dad. He was a real estate guy. Okay. like a big real estate guy. And he popped up at this house. Like I had kind of been staying with her at their place and just figuring it all out. And he's like, if you guys want to rent this, like I'll get, you know, market rate. It's a great deal. Great house. So we lived there for a bit. Cool. I didn't make any money by the way. Like during this time, I still like through the car business had money and it was Tulsa, Oklahoma rent was like $510 a month. So it was really inexpensive for a house. Yeah. 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 I think wow. all in all. Yeah. Cause he offered, like he paid her side of it. So it would have been like 1100, but I just paid half of it. Wow. That's nothing. That's great. And then like, at what point, like you, you needed to start making some sort of money. What are you, you know, what are you doing now? Well, so I started like, as I started nurturing into this, there were a couple videos that I made that got into the like 250,000 view mark. And I didn't pay a lot of attention to YouTube or the content creation space at all. Like I was kind of in my own silo, my own world. And so for me, my thought, I'm sure other people are already onto this because like Machinima and all that were doing sponsorships. But my first thought was, how do I sell something into this? Like, how do I make this something that can actually earn money? Because clearly YouTube's not going to be the way that's going to happen. Right. So I started going to some events and talking to the vendors there and making a little bit of money with like, you know, Cooler Master would at least send product which was huge because I could then do giveaways, even if they weren't paying to garner more viewership, get more people involved and keep trying to like leverage that viewer base to make money. How did you start to monetize then? Well, what was, I guess, like the first thing that you were like, ah, this is, this is where I'm going to make a little bit of money. About the time my viewership started blowing up was about the time that um, live streaming of Counter-Strike started becoming a thing. And the first people to actually take advantage of that in a big way was a longtime Counter-Strike league called ESEA. Um, It just so happened that the guy, one of the guys running it was a brother of one of my Counter-Strike teammates. Like it was a a random happenstance. He wasn't running it, but he's like higher up, built the thing. He's former pro, all this stuff. And he's like, hey, I'm working with Craig Levine, who was the owner of Team 3D, kind of legend esports at the time to do this land, why don't you come cast it? Like, come come commentate this. I've seen some of your stuff, like, just do it. And so I showed up, they paid me like $300 a day. And I'm like, okay, like that, that this is something I could do. Like, this is a right. whole thing. Um, so that was really, I think the first time that I had enough money to be like, hey, it was more than net positive. Like I actually, you know, there's stipend for food. All this stuff is great. And all you have to do is talk about something that you're genuinely interested in. And something that you know probably more than more than ninety five percent of the people that are playing about. Yeah, and like that was the thing is I my a lot of my content was bridging the gap between I love Counter Strike or I loved Counter Strike back in like the early two thousands, and it, I, was, I was trying to be the gateway for people to understand how complex Counter Strike is. It's way more than click head die. Like it's 
right way more complicated <laughs> yeah. right there's a there's a lot of moving parts there's a lot that goes into it and and how the game has probably evolved maybe if you're like an older viewer being like oh you know that that's not so bad what, you know, that's not so hard what he was doing and you're like actually it's a lot more intricate than that all the time dude to this day i like someone looks into me i'm like interviewing someone for a job or something and they look into me beforehand on linkedin they look me up at google and they're like oh counter-strike uh, they always come in there like, oh man, I was incredible at Counter-Strike when I was a kid. Like everyone who like didn't survive to the competitive like era of Counter-Strike thinks they were like really good. And yeah. so when they see the pros now, they're like, I could have done that back then. It's no problem. <laughs> it's like, no, man. <laughs> so you made 300 bucks a day commentating. This yeah, is, this was, is pivotal. Yeah, it was huge. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I mean, it wasn't like a huge amount of money, like to me, even at that point, but it was like, for the return, like the return on what I already would have been doing and frankly probably would have paid in to just go experience and see how it was going. Like getting paid for that was big for me. So how many gigs did you have like this with Counter-Strike? Varying pay in over, you know, a couple of years, I think I did maybe 20 events. Um, it started picking up more and more through that company that ESEA, they had a consultancy service where they would basically hire in people like me to help other companies like Twitch do the things that they wanted to do or be talent. Um, so th I worked with them forever. It was like, yeah, you guys just keep booking me for things. You're basically my agent. Like, this is great. Right. That's incredible. That's an amazing gig, especially yeah. as like someone in their twenties, right? Like yeah. you said, two days could cover your more than, more than your rent. Yeah. And like it, once again, it, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but you know, it's all context because then as that moves on, the more interest there, there that came to video games, cause there wasn't a lot of it at that point. Um, the more money we got, right? right. Like it's not like they were just ripping us off. I mean, I think when Counter-Strike Global Offensive launched, uh, I got an offer for like 2,500 bucks to do, to cast a online single best of three match. Like that was that was awesome. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was a big jump. <laughs> At what point did you say, I'm going to go and do game development? Um, another really weird twist in this was through the YouTube channel. So Counter-Strike Global Offensive was launching and I hated it. I hated Global Offensive. A lot of people who came, there were two versions of Counter-Strike that people played. It was Source and 1.6. 1.6 was... I'm biased, was like a little more mechanically involved. It was a little bit slower. There were a lot more like the skill ceiling was higher. I don't know many people that disagree with that. Uh, not saying that pro source players are worse than 1.6. If anyone's listening to this, it's just, it was a different game. Right. Um, Global Offensive was trying to like mesh those two together. I started making videos about how I hated a lot of the design decisions and why at like a very deep level. And I wasn't aggressive with it. I was very analytical, more viewership. I started getting popping up. I, that's how I learned about Reddit. A bunch of people like, Oh, I saw your video on Reddit. Subscribe. I'm like, the hell's a Reddit. And so I started <laughs> learning about Reddit, started seeing that other people agreed with me through that. And so I started making series of videos directed at, at uh, valve and hidden path. He was developing it with them. So one of the videos that I made was actually how to be heard as a fan of something. Like if you want something to change, how to communicate with the developers. And I took this problem where everyone said the recoil is absurd. It's way too high in global offensive. Like I, there's no way this does not feel like counter-strike. It's, it's too rough. And I had noticed that like, I don't think the recoil is that much higher on paper. It's just that it feels way worse because of the decisions that they've made 
for the way the screen moves to give mm-hmm. you feedback with the recoil. Like you need them to be lockstep. So it's can become a like muscle memory. If you want a higher skill cap, it's got to be something that you can master, but hard to do. Right. So I explained all that and like, Hey, by the way, don't just say shit. Like the recoil is too high. Explain why you feel that way. And did this video on it. I got this random email to my Wizen Hunt TV address of this guy claiming to be the president of Sony online entertainment. And he said something like, Hey, I saw your video on, you know, is the recoil actually too high on Counter-Strike? And like, I, I think you made a lot of good points. I don't remember the email, but it, it like was very complimentary and it ended with something like, I would love to hire you to have, to come out and just take a look at one of the FPS games we're working on. It's under wraps. I was like, yeah, sure, dude, whatever. I deleted the email. Like I, no, you're trying to scam me. Like I've, I've been around these parts. No, because right. they wanted my like information to like fly me out. And I'm like, no, it's not going to happen. Two weeks later, I get an email from this other person who was like clearly BCC'd on that email that was claiming to be this person's like assistant or someone also at the company. And I'm like, all right, fine. Maybe this is a thing. Let's jump on the call. And I ended up sending him the information and I didn't even ask what the offer would be for the consultancy fee. Like they're willing to fly me to San Diego. This is a cool experience. This seems to be legit. Let's do this. They flew me out. Um, I can't disclose how much money they paid me, but it was like, it was above 5,000 and less than 10 for two weeks worth of work. Uh, and it was, it was really, I don't know how to describe this. It was very fulfilling work. Like I felt like it was a lot of money, but I felt like for the first time I was offering a value that no one in that spot could have offered. And I got paid for that. And that felt incredible. The designers are incredible. I wasn't any smarter than them, but I was a fresh pair of eyes coming in from a completely different mindset, a completely different goal and a completely different opinion on things. And all I did was talk with all the designers, which was amazing, by the way, I'd never been in a game studio. And suddenly I'm like doing this thing. I, I learned from all these designers about why they did certain things, tried to get their perspective, wrote it all up in two pages in like generally a uh, advice type meeting with everyone sitting there is the president of the company and the creative director who I think hated me by the way, because the president (laughs) of the company was like, I'm going to hire in this random kid from YouTube to tell you how to do your job. And I definitely picked that up. It was not ideal, but somewhere through this meeting, the president turns around, looks at me, uh, John Smedley, and he just, he's a friend to this day. He just looks at me, he goes, why don't you come work for me? Like, why don't you come work for the team? Like come join us, like move out here, come work on this game. And the game was planet side two and like, like help lead and run our combat for this first person shooter. And I was like, I think I'm in, I'm going to need some time. And I went back home. Uh, and my ex fiance did not want to leave home. She was the kind of person that was like, I want to be around my big family here. I don't want to go anywhere. We argued and fought. And finally she's like, okay, I will follow you out there later. And I moved like almost immediately um, San Diego packed up all my shit, drove myself with her out there. She stayed with me for a week and we basically never saw each other again. I think she was like very clear on the fact that she, none of them believed this was going to work. Right. And that's okay. There's no reason it should have. Uh, but also <laughs> like on top of that, she didn't want to leave. And it just got to the point where it was just like, no, like I, this is too important to me. This is too important to you. We're, we're not going to work out. And we split up at that point. And I just worked at Sony. It makes sense. You know, your, your whole life was changed. You know, you have a real job offer from like a real company, like that, that clearly values that was the, that was the key thing. What you said clearly values your skill set. Yeah. And there's no better feeling in the world than that. When somebody, 
you know, you've been doubling down and quadrupling down over and over and over again on what on this content creation and just like on gaming and, you know, giving so much to this community. And so it's really so nice to be able to like finally have that moment, right? Where after more than 10 years of gaming, somebody's like, wow, come work with us. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about what it was like, you know, leading this side of the team? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, so I worked for, um, uh, these, I mean, technically, I guess I worked for the creative director, but like really there was a senior like lead combat field is what they call it, designer. And that person is the one that is talking about the overall big picture. And that is the one who works with the animators and artists and everyone to make sure that it's lining up with the way it's supposed to work. Um, when I came in, I immediately wanted to change everything about yeah. like the animation. I'm a big feedback guy. I believe games need to feel good if you want them to be competitive. They have to feel responsive, like almost like a supercar. Like if you go and you drive a Corvette, you get a good feel for the car. But if you sit down in a uh, Koenigsegg or you sit down in even just like a C63 AMG Mercedes, it's a whole different feedback mechanism. Like the car is built to give you as much information as possible so you can do better. That's how I think games should be. So immediately I kind of took over that part of the project. It was like any gun I want to change to be more responsive and like communicative to the person using it. And it became a 12 hour a day or more in the office of just reworking the game before launch. I presume that you were probably doing more of the strategy behind it, right? Like you weren't the one, you know, hacking out all the code, were you? So yeah, I ended up in that side because like the the way game design works is coders and engineers, they build a code base and then they add basically fields or like hooks for not as technically inclined folks to modify it. So they build a system that runs recoil, right? It's the concept and everything, but there's a bunch of variables that they expose to designers. And so we can make the strategy decisions. We can make the big picture decisions, but we then are tweaking all the parameters and asking them to add additional ones and that sort of thing. So it's a little half in half out. Okay. You keep talking about recoil. Um, what do you mean? So when you play a game like uh, call of duty, right? A lot of people play call of duty. When you shoot your gun, it's built to be a console game. So it operates on cone of fire, which a lot of people call recoil. It's like you shoot the gun and the more you shoot it, the more inaccurate it becomes, right? Your crosshair gets bigger. So there's that mechanic of cone of fire. That's that. And then recoil is your, it's actually moving your screen around. So like if I'm looking this way and I shoot a gun and it actually pulls my crosshair and everything up, and I have to adjust for that, that's recoil. So were you managing anybody directly when you were working at, I guess it was Sony at the time, right? Now it's Daybreak? Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't. So I was a senior kind of IC, like individual contributor. I, I ultimately be held responsible for like how people reacted to, it was a free to play game. So you purchase in to buy other weapons. So it's like, I need these things to operate well and different enough from each other and also not make one stupidly better than another. Right. Uh, So, you know, it's not pay to win and all that junk. So it was mostly just me worrying about that aspect. Okay. No, that makes sense. I suppose like, I think, you know, um, if they brought you in to be like, all right, you're going to manage a whole team. I feel like that would be, it might also be a little overwhelming. No. (laughs) 
Oh yeah. I, I had never like, I had, I had worked with like sales teams and stuff, but when it comes to product or anything with timelines, like, no, I had never, <laughs> that would have been a disaster. I would have tanked that project in like three weeks. <laughs> so were you, t- were you still like kind of working with Twitch at this point? Yeah. So I was still streaming and I would still go do casting gigs through, at this point I had been doing them for and with Twitch as well. And funny enough, like not much to fill in, but like, if you go back a few years, I'd actually been offered to go work for Twitch. Uh, I don't know how serious the offer was, but it's definitely something that I probably could have gotten. Like I was working production for one of the events that they were doing at PAX or E3. And I had just said like, uh, they, they, it says like, Hey, Gunrun could use help. Uh, with the production side and like really fleshing all this stuff out with content. And I was like, I kind of enjoy just working for myself. Right. Um, but that whole time I'd left that open and I had still gone to do events with ESS and it was good as a designer too, because I was a public face of the game. And if I'm involved in other scenes, it was beneficial to Sony. So I still did a lot of that. So there's a couple of questions that I want to ask about, like, you know, you at this point in your life, you know, you, you'd been working kind of odd jobs here and there back home. But now, you know, you're, you're out in San Diego, which is a lot more expensive. You know, how did your lifestyle change? I, so I never had a salary before. Like, this is the first time that I had a guaranteed amount of money coming in. Like I, uh, just for context, uh, not to derail, but for context, before the car business, I swept floors in a grocery store uh, when the hours were available. Like that was existing money. It was like minimum wage. I... Uh, I used a temp agency for as many jobs as I could find. I, I poured concrete coffins at one point, which is the weirdest thing a temp agency ever gave me. And they actually did the cremation of people in the same concrete room at different times. So I think I've inhaled human. Oh. I, <laughs> I, if you have ever, uh, if you've ever eaten an apple pie at McDonald's, they, a lot of them used to come from Bama pie factory in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's just factory with like conveyor belts. I worked there uh, quality control for pies. Like, so would you take that into like, Hey, car business, bunch of money. I obviously wasted almost all of that. And then you go into a salary. Like I've had a very like journeyed weird collection of jobs very quickly. And suddenly I have guaranteed good income in San Diego. So, uh, I was an idiot. (laughs) So you were spending like a fool? I was. I mean, like, I didn't know any better about like rent. I, I knew, I just knew that San Diego was expensive. Like I looked at a few places, I had to move fast and I just landed on a spot. It wasn't the most expensive place, but like, I'm like, I deserve this. I've worked my ass off. Like I want to live somewhere nice on my right. own for the first time in forever. Uh, stupid decisions like that. What eventually led to you leaving Sony? By the time Daybreak was purchased by Sony, I had got to do so much incredible shit. I was starting to get really jaded by the games industry now. Car business first, now the games industry. I love video games. But it got to the point where the president and I, still friends once again, he actually works for an Amazon company now, so we see each other around every once in a while. He would hit me with things like, hey, are you in on this design thing? Are you still a streamer? Right. And it was funny is it was benefiting the games we were making for me to be a streamer and like be, I, I was the one that did community shows and pitching things and all the interviews. And so, but he really wanted me to spend more time working there. And that started to wear me out a little bit. Um, nothing against him. I totally get it. He's probably right. Honestly, over time that plus crunch, I don't know if you're familiar with games industry crunch. It's a term 
that when you're launching a game, it's it's considered inevitable by old time executives and companies that you have to spend seven days a week, literally 14 hours a day working on it to launch the game. And that's right. just expected. And it's months sometimes. You literally, there were days where I would be up for two nights straight at the office. Like I might go home and try to take a nap, not be able to sleep, come back and like work more. So though the combination of those two things, plus the company getting purchased and me being a little wary about the direction of things, I had done enough. I had the offer from Twitch. I reached out to some folks there and was just like, guys, I think I'm ready for a new journey. And, you know, if you'll have me, I'll, I'll jump on board. And my, the guy I knew immediately texted me back and he's just like, let's talk now. And we jumped on and talked that evening about what jobs might be available. Do you ever think about how things could have been different had you gotten into Twitch before um, it was acquired? I, I joke about that a lot. And like, it's a lesson that I want to keep really tight and explain to my son and like everyone that I can, uh, anyone that I'm trying to help mentor anything is that it's, n- I missed nothing. I very well could be worth $50 million right now. <laughs> if I would have been the, for all I know, I have no idea. Like being like the, the, 14th employee of Twitch or whatever, like there, there, uh, if I, if I, if, if, if is the thing, right. If right. I would have gotten that buyout, like if I would have got enough shares, if I would have invested it properly, right? right. It's really easy to get caught up in how that could have gone. But instead I moved to San Diego where I met my wife who had just graduated from SDSU where I got to launch planet side Two, one of the most like critically acclaimed shooters of the 2000s and be credited for that. And then I got to launch H1Z1, the first commercially successful battle royale game that is responsible for why Fortnite and everything's big now. So it's like, I don't think I would have traded that experience for anything else. So now you switch over to Twitch. What were you doing? I joined as a uh, media organization um, partnerships manager which makes no sense as a title. It, it frankly was a pretty entry-level position. It was still very startup-y, just post-acquisition. Um, it basically meant anything that wasn't a streamer directly. So like if you weren't Lyric or Soda Poppin or one of them, that was me. Like it was HBO, Vice, PC Gamer, like any of the companies that are coming over with things. Yeah, I came over to like help explain that side of the industry to them. I found myself like Twitch found itself. I, they didn't really have a BD team. They had some people who were BD roles, but they did other things in the game space. So they needed someone who could understand gaming, but also speak professionally and be a real BD person, which at that point, any BD guy you find just works for a publisher and they aren't really in the gaming scene. So I was able to take that role. And so what was that like in terms of, you know, like had you worked with high level executives outside of Sony before? No, I hadn't. And I honestly think it played to my advantage. I don't think I've ever met any executive that disliked me immediately. I've heard so many stories of MBAs coming out uh, of school and then going and joining like a BD role and having major issues with executives and attorneys and, you know, the more aggressive side of the industries they're in. I never had that problem. And I think it's because I never had a reason to believe I knew anything. I like was always, I, I, that might as well been free school that paid me. Like I got to sit and talk to advertising heads of business and artist relation people at labels and just learn what their goals are. And they're stoked. They're like, Oh, this dude, this cool new thing, Twitch, like just wants me to teach him. And I get to learn all about Twitch. So that's kind of what that role turned into. Right. So you just got to really just learn a bunch. 
I got to learn so much so fast. Yeah. You know, it's so critical that you're saying this because it's one of the lessons that I'm trying to get through to a lot of the list, a lot of the listeners is that, you know, you have two ears and one mouth. You can be, you can ask questions and that's one of the best ways to learn because if you immerse yourself just in a good environment where you, you can foster the ability to learn, it's the best way to make good contacts. And it's the best way to kind of like further your career and kind of gauge what you want to go into next. You did that for what, like two years? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Two years. Okay. And then you were, you know, I guess you, you're still at Twitch now. So what did you do next after, after you had worked more with like these media organizations? So we were a gaming platform only when I joined. You actually weren't allowed, if I recall, to stream anything other than video games on Twitch. Like that was what it was for. They had really done a great job forming that community. And more questions started popping up about what other kind of content can we have here? Like what the community's trying to figure that out. Like we're trying to figure that out. And because I was the guy that was like, Jimmy's in both sides, the professional and the whatever on partnerships. Partnerships, by the way, there's nothing against them. Like some of the best people ever. And frankly, my favorite team at Twitch, period. Uh, but it was it was a lot of like talent management. It, it didn't involve at that time a lot of the business negotiation with companies and all of these other larger partnerships uh, unless you were an executive. So as questions started coming up around content, I kind of naturally became the guy of like, I don't know what to do with this thing let's, you figure it out. And so we started introducing non-gaming content to the platform, like Drone Racing League and other things. And I saw a gap with uh, the VP of partnerships and the team of like, there's not a place that we're out sourcing these opportunities that we're like, there should be a function for us to be in the space and reaching out to those at, you know, the CAAs and everyone else in the world before that interest comes in. So we can pre-educate them. They can better vet opportunities. And so I ended up being asked to build the team that did that, uh, which at the time we called content development. It was basically an acquisition team. We went out to get partnerships into Twitch. Right, because it sounds like you were going out and having all these meetings and establishing all these meetings with people so that you can kind of build the interest. So that, so that you kind of incept the idea in their brain that they're like, oh yeah, like this is, this is probably something that we could partner with them. Let, let us come back to them and see how we can work with them. Yes. Yeah, no, for sure. Exactly. And it's just like trying to vet, like lay the seed of the conversation, let them know what our goals are and leave it in their court. And if it happens to turn into something great, then we've got a great opportunity. If it doesn't, no harm, no foul, we can move to the next opportunity. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about because like that was the first time that I think we had a concerted focus team on that. We'd done some of the work, but no like dedicated resources. So after like, it's in a way different place now, if you look at the partnership org now as compared to where it was then, it's all, you know, way more mature. A lot of the same people are there, but everyone's just leveled up and is now doing the things that we were doing, but you know, it was a different time. So what are some of the partnerships that you did build? Vice was one of them, um, which was really exciting. It was their first crack at gaming culture, not not just gaming. They, like they didn't approach it from a way of like, hey, fellow gamers, and, like kick in the door and like try to act all you know part of the scene. They brought in their talent, like Bodega Boys and all these other people, to get involved in the conversation around gaming and the geekdom that surrounds it. And it was just really fun because it comes with an inherent political angle, which I'd always wanted to see more of is more serious conversations in the community of gamers. So that was a really fun one to do. What do you mean like the political angle? 
just like more substance than the game itself. Like we had already seen that, you know, the, the more successful streamers are bringing much more than the game and their skill to what was happening on Twitch. And I was always interested in the culture. Like it, it was at a point where Twitch was driving gaming culture bigger. And it was the first time that I was seeing someone like Vice recognize that it's big enough to warrant a focus. Right. Uh, and they wanted to do it with Twitch. So like th- that there's some sort of a community around it and what does the community really entail and like, how is it built and how is it cultivated? How can we foster more of that? Right. No, I got, I got that. I got that. Okay. So then, you know, you're, you're doing some content development. You were talking a little bit about like how you can't be a streamer that's not in gaming. And then you're, you're kind of thinking about other sorts of rev, not like revenue streams, but just other avenues that Twitch can go into um, what were some of these avenues that, you know, you and your team helped develop? Well, honestly, we rarely had the good ideas. It was, it was us looking at the community and the directions they were going. Like we, at that point had launched a creative vertical, uh, by then, which was an opening to non-gaming content for a lot of folks. It was like, we did it with this, no, I say we, I had nothing to do with it, but it was sick. Uh, they launched, uh, the creative vertical with this, like, Bob Ross marathon of every episode of the joy of painting for literally two weeks straight back to back. And it, when it ended, I don't even remember the numbers, but there were like a hundred thousand people or something watching that and all just posting crying emojis. And it was just like a moment for everyone to realize it's like, we do like more than gaming. And it was kind of like letting the world know that this culture isn't gamers. They are part of a culture who games like it was just this cool moment of now you have artists coming over gamers sharing their singing experience who are already on twitch uh so anyway i, I wanted to smooth that out because by the time we had built the acquisition team the content development team um we were already thinking about podcasts and like helping people earn money through podcasting helping people earn money through their talk shows through their uh, racing and through drones or whatever. So really for us, it was more of who's resonating well, who stands to gain the most from these partnerships because Twitch had become an engine to make a living doing what you love. So how do we work with the people who could do that the best? It sounds like you were working on a lot of the branding side, really like kind of like directly and indirectly, like, you know, you were doing content development, but ultimately with the goal of people not just thinking like, okay, Twitch is just gaming live streaming. Yes. Okay. So then how did you move from content development into music partnerships and that sort of strategy? I was really lucky to be afforded two different opportunities already that um, I was in over my head on and had the opportunity to learn. The level of work we were doing quickly exceeded my capability like the team which i can't take credit for much of that like the team that we that we built was really good like they were amazing people mixture of people from the community who had already been working at twitch and what an opportunity to folks we hired in from others and it operated it, it just worked and it also needed better supervision than myself so we hired in um a uh rock star out of disney kendra johnson to run that and me under her. And it just became a point where like my kid was due. I was going on paternity leave. I felt like I'd hired myself out of a job twice, which was super dope. I actually love doing that. And I had been kind of vocal with our VP and other people about like, I'm not sure what's next for me. I like, maybe this is time for me to leave Twitter. Like, and I didn't want to, but it's like I doing the music thing a little bit already with a lot of these artists part-time, maybe that's something I want to go out and try. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came back from maternity leave, I was introduced to Pat Shaw, 
who our chief strategy officer just hired to build a music team. And he's like, hey, this guy knows next nothing about Twitch, uh, but he knows everything about originals, licensing, music, and loves the mission of Twitch. You guys were together. There's also like Joel and other people there too, building product, like go build this thing. And I'm like, perfect. And I said, yes, and started that. So what was that like? That must've been a huge learning curve for you. Uh, Yeah, it was. But it was another one of those instances where I saw the match between my experience being, even if it wasn't immediately apparent how valuable it may be for the team to other people, I knew that like what I could bring, I don't know many other people on earth who have gone from competitive gaming to making games and like product experience into acquisition negotiations, business and everything else, all while being a part and a core part of Twitch culture as a viewer and everything. So it's like, I don't know many other people who would have been able to do that role as good as me at that point in time. So it was just a great match. I felt really happy to be able to do that. Talk a little bit about building this out on the music side. Yeah, it was a lot of really weird work. It was the kind of thing where if you were to ask me what my day-to-day would be like, I have no idea. Like it would change all the time. One of the first things that I was asked to come over for, it was actually the Twitch Sings team at that point in time. How do we help that behavior be more accessible through Twitch in a way that can make people money and that it could be a part of the repertoire of artists things. And so that was the first early focus. And it always kind of been put with me that, Hey, this is it now, but we're going into overall music. This is the first step. And so it was all helping, you know, events, marketing, early beta testing, feedback, really leaning in on uh, myself and my relationships on like getting actual streamer feedback, cutting through the BS and just being like, hey, this is what a streamer needs and all that sort of thing for quite a while, probably for a year. That like Twitch things experience taught us so much from both sides of the industry, people working on that team. And then also building out what we thought would be the plan for the future of music on Twitch. And then COVID happens, blessing and curse, because one, I mean, obviously terrible things are happening, people's touring lives, but also on top of that, at least just from a company perspective, we weren't prepared for that level of inbound. Like you go for like, let's ramp into this. Let's, let's go one-to-one to artists and help them and like really show the power of earning your own money and building your own sustaining businesses as a Twitch streamer uh, into, I can't check my email because it's literally so many messages throughout the first week. It, 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 you can't keep up. Like it's so much just people trying to figure out how to do the Twitch thing. What is some advice that you can give to independent artists that are out there? Maybe that there aren't signed with labels. What, how can they use Twitch and monetize? The first part of it's a kind of a cop-out. It's do the thing. Like the thing is research and streaming. Like it's, there's no one sentence pitch that helps people understand Twitch. It's usually the first stream. Twitch happens to be a platform where gamers made a living playing video games for a very long time. Now it's literally that model plus additions being applied to music where we've wanted to pay artists money for all eternity. Like we've always wanted to do that. So the best first steps you can take, let your fans know that you're thinking about Twitch. They likely watch Twitch in some way have them work with you to spin up your first streams. It's a community building thing. It's a way to connect with their fans directly. They want your emotes. They want to watch you and they want to pay you money. <laughs> so really it's, it's do some research 
and uh, and dive in. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, what are some of the partnerships you know that you've worked on over the last couple of years now doing music strategy for Twitch that you're most proud of? Man, all of them are like it, it's hard because like so many of them are such huge team efforts. I think like. I think one of them is the stream aid event. And I had a very little part in that, but it was just incredible to watch come together. They did effectively. It's like live aid for the internet, like during COVID early days, people wanted an outlet to raise money. I can't even remember, but it was, it raised millions of dollars uh, in a 12 hour stream um, with everyone from MXM tune. Who's like kind of the industry's up next. I think she's incredible. Uh, to Charlie Puth. And like, it was just amazing to watch hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people through the whole thing, watching and donating. And I don't know, it was just, I think it was a wake up moment for a lot of the music industry and internet to see Twitch step in and do what they do in gaming. It wasn't hard. It's like, we do this in esports. We can absolutely do this in music. So let's do it and do, do it for good. So it was really cool. Nice. I have a guy who works on my team. Who's, who's going to kill me if I don't ask you about Kenny Beats. <laughs> the boy yeah so what was this whole initiative like for you were, were, were you working directly with kenny beats yeah so funny story about kenny uh so he had actually reached out to someone him and mike his manager who's incredible by the way is one of my favorite people at this point he reached out try to set up a call no i won't, I won't use any internal names here but long story short one of these people came to me were like hey are you familiar with the kenny beats I'm like, yeah, I, I enjoy some, some Kenneth instrumentals. Let's, let's talk. And so I jumped on the call and I didn't warn them about how deep the meme runs with Kenny. And so this introduction call was with two people, by the way, that I haven't been working with that long. Right. And they're like executives and I'm like the artist guy and like partnerships guy. So we get on the call and I don't remember what I said, but I called Kenny a cop at one point because it was like a major meme at that point. Vince Staples had called him the police on right. freestyle on the cave. And he just snapped back so fast, like laughing, but angry. And they thought I ruined the call and it was actually <laughs> hilarious. But like we ended up memeing each other for like that whole call. I was like, cool, this is a really good sign. He is who he appears to be. Like this is the guy I see on the cave. This is the guy I see in the interviews. And of course he ends up being friends with Zach Fox and Thundercat and all these people people and did so right. like it, it he's just a fun loving goofball that makes incredible music so uh we got to know them over a bunch of calls over time i flew down to meet with him uh in his studio in the cave which was surreal that was super sick i get to a lot of cool things but like sitting in the cave after watching so much of it same spot that uh you know freddie gibbs sat and all that it was like really cool um and we just ideated and helped helped him get his ideas out in a way that could happen because Kenny is, I can take zero credit for anything Kenny's doing. I just helped him do the thing and like tried to make sure it didn't break. But yeah. Yeah. You just, exactly. You just help him get it done, whatever he's looking to do. Yeah. It's, it sounds like most of your job, like, you know, how you're describing it to me, like there's definitely no two days that are going to be super similar. Right. But what sounds really cool about, about the work that you do at Twitch in each one of these roles is brainstorming. You're really just doing a lot of brainstorming and working with different music junkies, talent, geeks, like nerds yeah. like us, just like trying to say, okay, like what, 
what can Twitch offer you? And like, what are you already doing? And what are you looking to do? And okay, like, let's, let's try to find a cool way to bring this up. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, it's funny. I never thought about that. It's literally been everything that I've done. Um, I like talking if you can't tell. So as long as that's a major part of the job, all good. <laughs> Does it ever feel like work what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Oh my God. I, so <laughs> That, that's the other side is those same people that would hit me up are like, holy shit, is this you are the same ones that I think are not excited because my name was somewhere and they know me, but it's more that like, man, what a cushy gig that must be. The amount of work that it takes to work with artists and their teams. And it's not that they're just inherently hard to work with. It's just a hard industry. And there's mm. a lot of red flags, a lot of things you got to look out for. And you've got to be so above board. The industry is, it is really bad to some people and we're not a part of that industry. And we're working in a space where we have to show who we are. And it's that we are the people that help you make your money, not the ones who, you know, make it harder. Um, So, yeah. Cause you're, you're not taking a percentage off anyone's streaming, you know, Obviously, Twitch is making money in, in you know, the ways that it's making money. But ultimately, it's, it's a platform where people can monetize. And Yeah, and I, I've always said that like, if there was another platform right now that I felt like was better serving creators or was when Twitch started, like, I would work there. My company loyalty is, is as good as uh, it serves its community, which is a great spot to be. Yeah, well, you're in an incredible spot right now. I can't imagine you jumping ship anywhere anytime soon it sounds like you know twitch seems to offer you as you know as a, as a personal person <laughs> as a personal personal person, person. as yeah. a human as a human yeah yeah or, or as many humans because you might have inhaled <laughs> <laughs> right or- <laughs> yeah i think i probably have five or six people uh just yeah that, that might explain my weird career path it's just like oh, that sounds exciting today it was I, I i inhaled a pie maker at one point and it made me super happy to wake up at 4 a.m and work alternating shifts for 14 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool so you know where you know where do you see the future of the music business or you know the gaming business i think the music industry is going to continue down the path we've seen which from the casual observer probably looks bad, but I think it's good. I mean, as much as I don't love the way Kanye is going about this, you know, whole expose for, you know, labels and nothing against him or his label, but it's just like people are finally openly talking about the things that can be wrong, in my opinion, with the music industry. And more platforms are starting up and getting more funding that are only in existence to help those issues. And that's around education and representation and around diversity and around, you know, selling your own art, if that's your path and just Mm -hmm. more equitable ownership of your own art. Like, so what, I don't know what path that takes, but I want to be a part of that because it's an industry that has been built on the backs of artists for so long. And it's finally hit a point where I feel like at large, They've had enough and they need more clear information on why they're paid what they are paid, how they're paid what they're paid and how to do better and more and so on. Um, Yeah. 
That's perfectly said. And you're hitting the nail on the head. You're a thousand percent right. And there's a lot of things that the music industry is incredible at, but there's a lot of things that need, I think, to be changed or innovated on a little bit. And I think that Twitch is sort of filling that gap right now. So this is going to be a tricky question um, because you've had such an unconventional path. What kind of advice would you give to, to someone who's you know, in high school listening to this or in college listening to this, you know, what, what kind of guidance can you give them so that they can try to emulate a similar path to you? So never stop learning. And I don't mean that as in always seek higher education. I mean that in the way that if you are sweeping the floor for minimum wage at warehouse market, this tiny town, in the middle of nowhere, you can be the best damn sweeper of floors on the planet. Why not be the absolute best floor sweeper that you possibly can? What are you, what else are you doing? <laughs> uh, that isn't just to say like, be good at everything you do, but start forming as early as you can. The thought that everything you do, you can do better and you should, and you will, because when you start landing on the things that set you in the right direction for your career, or your life, you're going to work hard there. But if you're not spending all of your time preparing yourself to always be good at what you have in front of you, you very well could squander the thing that you would have enjoyed later. Like just prepare for the moment that the thing, the opportunity presents itself for you to do exactly what you want to do and be working hard up to it. I couldn't agree more. You know, like I took unpaid internships and I would, you know, one of the tasks was changing the garbage bags at the end of the day. And, you know, I, I was the best damn garbage bag changer that they had ever had. Thanks so much, Jimmy, for, for making the time. This has been an incredible experience for me. And I know that there's so many listeners out there that are going to love this. No, I appreciate it. I, I told you when we first met that I've, every time I've been asked, Hey, you know, how'd you get into this on a panel or something? I never am, am able to chronologically catalog it. So thank you for assisting me on that journey. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I think this is great. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I just wanted to take a quick moment and shout all of you guys out who have been tuning into the podcast week after week, especially those of you who have taken, you know, 30 or even 60 seconds out of your day to write me personally on any of the socials on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and really, really, really those of you who have left me a review on Apple Podcasts. I love that. Thank you for sharing your love and expressing how each episode has positively affected your path. The whole purpose of this podcast is to bring people up, give them great resources. So thank you so much. This is the kind of support that's keeping me going. Lastly, if there's anybody that you know that has an inspirational story that would maybe make a great guest, please reach out to me on any of our platforms and I'd be happy to get in touch with them. Again, thanks everyone. Much love and stay safe.